You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. So, uh, most impressive gymnastic move. I'm going to go with somersault. Never tried much gymnastics, but uh, I think I could pull that one off. Um, I'm Nick. If we don't know each other, I'm, I'm the pastor here in Alani Life, and now is the time in our service where I love we get a chance to do a Bible study together. Uh, I hope you've had a chance to dig into our passage in small groups this week. I know many of you did, and I know there are a lot of questions. I will not answer all of them today, but we'll do our best. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be back here. I love uh, this rhythm in our week. I love being together. I love seeing you all here. Uh, thanks, uh, those of you that uh, joined us last week. It was fun to be together right before classes got going. If you uh, missed that and you want to know where we're at in our study this semester, we're working through the book of 1 Timothy. And so last week I did the intro to that and sort of framed in where we're going to be these next few weeks. So you can go check that out on our website. You can listen to it on our podcast. In fact, all our messages generally get posted up there. So you can catch up if you're away or you want to go back and reference something uh, that was said earlier uh, in the week. Well, uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, and so I'm, I'm going to try to just jump right in. So buckle in, settle in, right? We're going to get right into our, uh, hopefully right into our message. First uh, Timothy, if, if you're unaware, this is a letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, one of his disciples, one of the, his co-missionaries that were on his the journeys recorded in the books of Acts. Paul is writing to encourage Timothy to stay stable in his role as the leader in the church in Ephesus, to be confident in his ministry role. Sometimes we refer to this letter as it's pastoral, but it's very personal. It's caring for Timothy, a younger pastor in in a challenging church context, when he needs help. This this type of letter in the New Testament, it's often referred to as a pastoral epistle. And what that that means is, is it's a letter written to a pastor of a church to help them lead that church. And there are three of these in the New Testament. There's First and Second Timothy and Titus. And these, these letters, because they're written to pastors of churches, they can often be overlooked. People can think that's for church leaders. That's for those that are, uh, you know, running the church to read and study. But we believe here that all scripture is profitable and beneficial for our faith. And so we want to dig into this, and we want to see what the Lord has for us. We want to see what we can get out of this. What is the wisdom? Not just those of us that lead. And so 1 Timothy, uh, study it. Join with your small group. Study it each week. It covers a lot of territory, a lot of things on display. But at the, at the heart of it, and we saw this when we launched last week, the heart of it is false teachers and chaotic worship, trying to get that sorted and get it in order. Help Timothy get a handle on how to lead through that. Throughout the letter, Paul gives Timothy guidance on how to address those things, how to handle and correct those situations. And the main takeaway, just giving you it up front, the main takeaway from this book, what we should always be concluding and learning, is how we ought to live in a healthy church, how we ought to be as a healthy church. It's for us, for us to live as a healthy body of Christ. And Paul's helping Timothy get the church in Ephesus back to health to be a healthy church. By the grace of God, these these principles, these teachings, they've been recorded for us to still be drawing on 2,000 years later and for churches throughout history to draw upon. How to lead healthy churches, that's the heart of this book. How to be a healthy church, how to be a member of a healthy church. Now last week, uh, if you were with us or if you had a chance to catch up on the podcast, 
we saw Paul affirm Timothy in his work to lead the church in Ephesus. He bolsters his confidence and, and tells him how to handle the false teachers in the congregation, right? Stand for what's true. Preach Jesus. This week, in chapter 2, we're going to see instructions for orderly worship. How to handle a worship service. What the church should be about. What kinds of things should be going on. How a church ought to function as it seeks to honor God and make his truth known in the community. Now, I don't often do this, but, but I, I want to offer a, a, a warning, maybe, as we dive into this passage. Not, not, not a warning. I, I just want to be honest about this passage. It's, it's very short, but it makes some bold statements. And this has led people to conclude all over the map and how to apply this passage. You know, I, I know from, from years of, of leading that some people, and some, of you, some people have, have come to us and said, have you read this passage, Nick? <laughs> A woman taught on Sunday. I know some of you, some of you women in the room, you've had maybe well-intentioned, maybe ill-intentioned men so you need to remain silent in the church because the Bible says that you're supposed to be quiet and submit to the men around you. If that's you, sorry, the gross misapplication of this passage, and I'm sorry you had to endure that. This passage can be challenging and it can be confusing for us. So I just want to put that out front. And if you've been harmed or you've been confused, it's okay. And I hope there's healing, and I hope there's clarity brought. Now, I'm under, I'm under no delusion that I'm going to answer all of your questions today. I already said that right up front. I know you have a lot of questions if you began studying this. I'm sure I won't answer all of them. Hopefully, I can shed some light. Hopefully, we can bring some clarity. At least you can know where we stand as a church and how we interpret this passage and how we apply it. What I want you to see this morning, as we engage in this teaching, as we walk through this passage, is that how you handle Scripture, how you do careful study and, imp and, and implementing Scripture in your life, requires careful work, scholarly work. It requires consistency, and it, it requires looking to all of Scripture, not just a myopic view of one verse or two verses. We look at the text around it, we consistently handle the text around it, and we consider all of Scripture. And that's what I want us to do this morning as we try to unpack this passage. And if we can successfully do that, if we can avoid the pitfalls, the traps, and the weeds, what, I, what we will see is that to be a healthy church, we have to be a prayerful church, and a church that embraces the distinct roles God has given men and women. We'll see that a healthy church is united in prayer, and that men and women embrace their different roles. We'll see a church to be healthy. It's, it's centered on prayer. It's united through prayer. And it's united by embracing distinct God-given roles. If you remember nothing else this morning, this morning, remember that to be a healthy church, we have to be for one another in prayer and for one another by living into the callings we've received. That's what we're going to see this morning. That's what this passage is about. Let's, let's do the work to unpack that. See how we get there. Go ahead. You can turn on your Bible and, and navigate to 1 Timothy chapter 2 or, or open it up. I, I generally have the, the passage up on the screen. I'll, I, 
almost always teach from the ESV. I'm doing that this morning. Um, I do encourage you to study through multi from multiple translations. Your small group leaders, I've encouraged them to use NIV as we work through this book, just to help handle things a little bit more clearly. But as we, as we get into our passage, we're going to look at the first seven verses. So uh, you can follow along with me. Here we're going to see Paul instruct us to be a people who pray, to pray for our authorities, pray for one another. Let's read. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in a high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a, a testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. I love that parenthetical statement. I feel like I should start punctuating messages with that. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. This is what we're going to see this morning. The staff meetings tomorrow, be there. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Right? Uh, I don't know. I, I love it. Uh, it. Paul is human, right? Paul, the, the reality is that Paul dealt with criticism. He was a leader that was challenged. He had his doubters. He was questioned about bringing the gospel to those outside the Jewish faith, to Gentiles. You may recall that from our study through the book of Acts last year. The point is, Paul was a real leader. He was against opposition. People doubted him. And his defensive remark kind of gives that away, shows it here. I just love how human he feels when I read that. Now, the whole of this chapter, keep this in mind, the whole of this chapter is about orderly worship services. Some Bibles, they include a, a, a heading here, instructions for worship. And so we keep that in mind as we're thinking about all of this, these 15 verses as we, as we go through them. It's all connected. To begin these instructions, Paul urges Timothy that prayer needs to be at the heart. It needs to be the hallmark of the church. Prayer. It says petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. These are all slightly different facets of prayer, ways to intercede for someone, ask for God to to provide what they need. There are all different ways to lift an individual up and present them before the Lord for the help they need, for the guidance they need. But this prayer, it's not just for those we like. It's not just for those that asked for us to pray for them, right? It's, it's the rulers, the authorities, the kings, the president, the senator, those that govern over us. The results of this type of prayer-marked church, he says, is a peaceful and quiet life, a godly and holy life, one that isn't marred by unnecessary, unnecessary conflict or, or picking fights with the establishment. One that is known for prayer, for God to lead and intervene in the lives of those that rule over them, hold authority over them. Not a rambunctious, loudmouth, mean-spirited, takes society and authority by force kind of church, but instead a quiet, fervent, prayerful church, one who asks God to intervene on their behalf. As the church, as God's people, 
when we encounter governing officials or legislation that we disagree with, our first reaction needs to be to pray. To pray rather than go to battle. We let God fight his battles. We pray and ask him to do so. And it doesn't mean we're not supposed to exercise our rights, right? We live in an amazing country where we can have a voice, where we can vote, where we can petition, we can write senators. We can engage with our ruling authorities. And so we do that. But we do so in a way that is prayerful and respectful. We we refrain from mudslinging and and name-calling and mocking them on social media. We pray for our leaders. To be a healthy church, we have to be a praying church, is what Paul is leading, is starting with. A church that lifts each other and our authorities up. A church that acts this way is pleasing to God, he says, right? And he connects that with God's desire for all people to come to saving faith in Jesus. Acting this way allows Jesus to be made known, to point people to Jesus. We are a praying church, we're a healthy church that points people. Let's continue on in our passage and see Paul's further instructions. Being a praying church, that's easy to swallow, maybe. Maybe convicting or challenging, but we're, let's see where he goes next. In the next couple of verses, 8 through 10, we're going to see uh, Paul offer direction for how men and women are to relate to one another, how to carry themselves in the church, how to, how to, how to live. So, so let's read. Let's see these instructions. Picking up in verse 8, he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good work. So while the first part of the chapter Paul is addressing the entire church body, urging us to pray. He now begins specific differing instructions for men and women in the church. Men are to lift up their hands and pray without anger or quarreling. They're to be united in prayer rather than divisive and aggressive, posturing or controlling in the church, exerting authority. Women are not to look to their outward appearance and dressed to be recognized or admired. Rather, they ought to look to their godliness, displayed through good works, serving the Lord, and caring for others. Now, now because these instructions might seem very straightforward, right? Pray without anger. Dress modest. We can miss the occasional nature of this letter. What do I mean by that? What, What I mean is that there was a reason Paul needed to include these instructions, right? There's a letter he's writing to Timothy to help him correct things in the church. Of all the things Paul could have written to Timothy about, these are instructions he needed to include. And the only explanation for that is because these were things that were going on in the church. He felt the need to write about men praying without anger and fighting because they were angry and fighting. They were quarrelsome. He felt the need to write about women dressing in a modest and respectable manner because they must not have been in their church services. The point I want you to see here is that something was happening in the services that was causing disorder, and Paul is trying to correct that. 
though we might not be able to pinpoint exactly what's going on, how these people are dressing, what these men are fighting over, we have a good enough understanding from this context to know that there is fighting and there's distraction through the way these women are dressing. Right? We know that, that the men were likely fighting and praying through bitterness and, and infighting, maybe posturing for authority, and the women were dressing in a manner that was drawing attention to themselves and away from God in the worship gathering. Now, now hear me out, because this is a sensitive topic, I know, in our society. This is not shaming modesty culture. This is not women being blamed because men were being lustful in a service, although this passage gets used that way at times. It's simply saying, when you come to worship God, let him be the focus rather than wearing your most attention-grabbing attire. Right? That's what he's instructing you. If you want to stand out, do so by your godliness, women, what he's dressing. Now, the, the attire in Ephesus, how these women were dressing and carrying themselves, their motives, the history behind that, all of that is of interest, and we will get there. But they often become a distraction from the point. The reason they're encouraged to dress modestly is to allow God to be the center of devotion in the service, not to be a distraction. Have themselves distinguish themselves through their devotion to God and their godliness. Likewise, the men are instructed to stop their posturing, their attempts to display our might through anger flare-ups or, or challenges to our fellow brothers in Christ and distraction. It's a distraction. It, it self-promotes. It asserts our position of authority rather than, than allow God to be the ultimate authority creates division in the church. It detracts from the message of Christ. It detracts from our head, who is the ultimate authority, Christ. So rather we are to pray without resentment, without arguing or bitterness, or to be unified. And so if we want to be a healthy church, we need to be men who pray peacefully with one another and women that are clothed in godliness so that we might not be a distraction from why we're here, to worship the Lord, our true authority. A church that acts this way allows God to be the focus in our worship gatherings rather than this leader or that leader, this woman or that woman who's well-dressed. Now, why don't we continue on to our, in our passage and we'll get to what is undoubtedly the most challenging and confusing part of our message this morning. We'll camp out here for a bit. In verses 11 through 15, we're going to see Paul lay out distinct roles for men and women in the church. This is a continuation of where he begun, and he will continue on into the next chapter, which we'll see next week. So let's read. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in their faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, we're here. There it goes, right? All, the word of God is inspired. It is true. It is challenging. It is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul's advice to Timothy, 
that's coming down the line in another letter. This is the inspired word of God. What do we do with it? What do we do with this? How does it sit with you? How does it make you feel? Angry? Affirmed? Confused? We have some options when we read things like this in Scripture, right? We can ignore them. We can try to explain them away. We can take them at face value. If we take it at absolute face value, what this says, what we've just read, is that a woman needs to be quiet and submissive as you learn about God in a worship service. Also, you cannot teach about God nor hold authority over a man. In fact, you should just remain quiet. And furthermore, Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was the one who was deceived and sinned. So you better have children to get saved. That's face value of this passage. Is that a fair handling? The trouble here is that if we take just the first few verses about women being quiet, not teaching, being submissive, and apply those literally, then we either ignore the saved by childbearing part or explain it away through other contexts. Only this is one full thought. It's one consistent thought. Continued thought of Paul unpacking and correcting a church. It's not easily separated into this phrase is literal and this phrase is figurative. This is for that time and, and this is for our time. Not. Paul's consistent. He's smart. He means something here. So we're left with a conundrum. What do we do? Do women need to remain silent in a church and only hope for their salvation through having children? Or can they hope for salvation through Christ, as Paul has already said, and regularly preaches? To ignore the prohibition of women teaching and holding authority, opening their mouths in a church? I don't think either extremes are reality. I think you know that. I think you've probably intuitively concluded that. Neither is what Paul intends. Part of the problem here is that Paul is addressing a very specific situation in this church in Ephesus. Something is happening in the church in Ephesus that he's writing to correct. There's a reason he wrote Timothy. And the thing of it is, Timothy knows exactly what he's addressing. He knows exactly what's going on and what Paul means by this. We don't, put it that bluntly. Timothy and Paul have known each other for 15 years. They have served Jesus together for 15 years, planning churches, knowing how to govern a church and how to keep it healthy. Paul is writing to Timothy to help him do that, to affirm that. Paul doesn't have to unpack his theology of gender, church polity, who is an elder, all these, how we, who teaches, who sets a doctrine. He doesn't have to do all those things because he knows it already. Timothy knows these things. That's what they've been doing for 15 years together. Paul hardly even has to reference anything. He just says, I don't permit. And this shouldn't happen. And Timothy knows what's going on. So with very succinct uh, words, Paul can get to Timothy what he needs to know to affirm his, his leadership. We, on the other hand, have to do some reconstructing We have to reference other parts of scripture. We have to think about history. We have to use the God-given brains we have to use some logic and apply it consistently across the passage. Get a full grasp of what this means for us today, how we're supposed to live this today. Here, here is what this passage absolutely cannot mean. This This passage can absolutely not mean that women have to be silent in a church. 
It can't mean that because Paul tells women in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that when a woman prays or prophesies, shares the word of God, brings the message of God, prophesies in a worship service, she ought to do so with her head covered, which is another thing. We'll talk about that in another passage when I want to be stressed out. Uh, <clears throat> let, me, let me read this. 1 Corinthians 11. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is, a dis it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair short or shave her head, let her cover her head. There's a lot going on in that. Like I said, we'll talk about that another time. The point I want you to get here is Paul is giving instructions for how a woman's supposed to speak, pray, bring the message of the Lord in a service. So already, we have either Paul speaking out of both sides of his mouth, or we have something else going on here, right? In Corinth, women are allowed to pray and prophesy, to speak the word of the Lord in the church. But in Ephesus, they're supposed to remain quiet. Something else is going on here. What is going on in Ephesus? That's hard to say for sure. But here's what we do know about Ephesus. We know this from Acts. You've seen this. We've talked about it a bit. Ephesus was the center of worship for the goddess Artemis. She's the most worshipped goddess in Asia during the time of Paul and the launch of the church. In fact, the temple of Artemis, which we have an artist rendition up here, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People traveled all over the Asia and the, the empire to come and see this temple and worship Artemis. You may recall from, from the book of Acts that, that Paul and the missionaries, they get in some confrontation about this as they spent time in, in Ephesus. As they began to preach the gospel and people got saved, the, the silversmiths who made the, the uh, uh, Artemis statues that people used for worship, they started to lose money because people weren't buying them. They were worshiping Jesus instead of Artemis, right? So they incite a riot. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians, right? You remember that from Acts. The silversmiths, they didn't like the fact that the gospel cut into their prophets. Artemis was a big deal in Ephesus. That's the point. People worshiped Artemis. They came from all over the empire to be a worship Artemis. Here's the thing about Artemis. Artemis was the god, goddess of fertility. She was sometimes called the queen of heaven, the mother goddess, the savior. Worship of her was put on by virgin priestesses, a lot of them. There was temple prostitution, very typical of pagan worship in the empire. Very erotic. Leave it at that. I mean, her specialty was fertility. You can figure it out. So we have women engaged in leading worship for a female false god in Ephesus. Some of them are coming to faith in Jesus. And they're bringing their culture, their clothing, their behavior, their teaching, their leadership of these services into the church. Into the worship services for Jesus. The culture around the church in Ephesus is seeping into the church as the gospel is reaching more people. 
That's what Paul is starting his writing to correct. He doesn't stop at, don't dress erotically for service. He goes on. He says, a woman can't teach or hold authority over a man. Which brings us to a very important part about translation. You read this in four different translations, you're going to see different words translated different ways here. Specifically, the word to exercise or hold authority over a man here, the, the exercise, hold authority, it's translated. It could also be translated, and I would argue more accurately be translated as usurp, to seize power, to grasp power unrighteously. So Paul is saying, I don't permit a woman to steal the stage, to snatch away authority of a man. Likewise, teaching here is about the ultimate doctrine, the ultimate direction of the church. What is the teaching of the church? So with that background, with that history, I can picture a converted priestess of Artemis coming to a worship and interrupting and interjecting her thoughts throughout the sermon and prayers. She led elsewhere. She was in charge. Why would she not be able to in this context? Why would she not be able to contribute in this context? Instead, Paul says, you must learn about God quietly, without confrontation and interruption, without sowing chaos, without usurping the authority of those already leading. Yet there's more than just specific directions for first century Artemis worshiping converts in Ephesus here. Right? And we know that because Paul argue, he anchors his argument in the created order. That's what he's doing in that, that rest of the passage. God's intended design for man and women is another way of saying it. That's the created order. For his people, how they're to relate to one another, how they're to relate to creation, him to each other. This is what's going on in the whole. Adam was created first, then Eve, and Adam wasn't deceived, but the woman was to be saved through childbearing. It's the creation narrative. The fall. And that's where Paul's argument is rooted in. Now, in the creation narrative, remember back to Genesis with me. If you haven't, I'll, I'll summarize it for you. In the creation narrative, we see God is ultimately in control. He's in control of all things. Out of nothing, God creates everything. And he saw it, and it was good. It was as he intended. He created the heavens and the earth, and then he filled the heavens and the earth. He created man to have dominion over the earth and to be in relationship with him. He walked with him in the cool of the day in the garden. But God also saw that it wasn't good for man to be alone. And so he created a suitable helper for him. And when Adam saw Eve, he said, whoa, man, right? As the joke goes, whew, let's bring some levity. God had made a perfect compliment to man, woman. It was good. God reigned on the throne over all creation. Man oversaw creation as he was tasked. Woman was made to compliment, to help him in that task. And then God gave a special calling, a unique calling, a unique gift to the woman. The gift of childbearing, of creating life in her and bringing it forward. Something reserved just for woman. And it was beautiful, and it was a privilege, and it was her responsibility. 
Yet that gift would become painful and fearful as sin entered into the world and corrupted God's good design. Yet childbearing was not the only thing corrupted in the fall, was it? All of creation felt sin's entrance. As the serpent approached Eve and deceived her, he inverted the created order. No longer was God holding the position of ultimate authority over creation, over Adam and Eve. Instead, this serpent had usurped God's authority. He took his claim to power and authority, drawing the attention away from God and placing itself as the one of importance, the one to, in the know, the one that knew what was best for the man and the woman. In the fall, the created order was reversed, and we have the serpent deceiving or in control of the woman. We have the woman over the man, why he does nothing. And we have God ignored. Everyone seizing a role that wasn't theirs and supplanting God. Now, sin hasn't just corrupted the order of creation. Sin has corrupted our abilities to execute these God-given roles, our experiences as we execute these God-given roles corrupted all of us, those of us that hold these roles, that hold authority. You know, we hear from time to time about scandals or abuses in churches, right? When, when a pastor, a man, took advantage of his role and took advantage of women or, or those under his care for his own gain in this way or that, right? Rather than protecting, providing, overseeing, and caring for those under, under his, in his congregation, he took advantage. Right? Rather than exercise leadership, he was selfish. And for, for that, there's been good reason for some to call for a relook at how we're doing. Is that the right way? Right? Some have concluded, no, in, in fact, the men shouldn't be in charge, the women should. That would be a better way. If a woman was here, this scandal wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have happened. Only we're seeing the track record is no better, really, in those cases. Because the problem isn't the gender of who is leading. The problem is sin. The problem is sin. Sin corrupted. Sin has inverted the order of creation. Sin has caused our roles to be a challenge or to be twisted. In the church, it can't be this way. With Jesus, it can't be this way. God's design was for man to answer to God for his calling to lead, to oversee creation. For woman to fulfill that calling, to help fulfill that calling, and to carry her own calling, creating life. Each was given a unique role and responsibility from the Lord. Each was given a special task. And it was good. It was beautiful. In the church, we get to relive that, to rekindle that. That's what we're called to do. Men, we must lead with humility, gentleness, and with God as the focus. Women can lean into their calling to glorify God through their good works, compliment man to complete his, him in what he lacks, and if the Lord wills, their children. Now back to Paul and Timothy. The instruction here for women 
not to teach or hold authority over man is wrapped up in all of this, the created order. That's where Paul has anchored his argument. What is in view here is a woman holding ultimate authority or teaching, directing, uh, for teaching, directing, for guiding the church, right? Setting the doctrine, holding responsibility for the church. To do that would be to usurp the role given to a man. The church is where God reigns, where it's supposed to be as God intended. But just as Eve did to Adam in the garden, Paul says, don't do it. Don't don't take over ultimate authority in the church. Let that be Adam's role. This is what Paul goes on to, this is why he's explaining the created order. And that's what's in view, and that's what he's drawing upon. He's not saying a woman is saved by having children. He's saying that's her special calling. Let me put this a different way. In the church, the place where God's kingdom is on display, where his people live as he intended, the roles distinctly given to a man and to a woman are still at play. Man is to oversee. Women is to help embrace that, and, and help, is to help and to embrace that special calling of bearing children. So if we want to be a healthy church, we need to embrace the God-given distinct roles of men and women. Yet, stay with me. Yet just as not all men will be overseers of churches, not all men will be elders or pastors, not all women will have children, it doesn't mean that they're failing at their calling just as it doesn't mean a man is failing at his calling if he's not a pastor. Paul is speaking in general categories about gender. He's going to go on in the next chapter, and he's going to outline the qualifications for overseers of churches, for, for elders, for pastors. Not all men can be pastors. Not all men can be overseers of the church. Not all men are qualified. He's going to go on and he's going to talk about other leadership roles, deacons and deaconesses in that chapter, and we'll see that next week. And here, the qualifications, they're for both men and women because the Lord has gifted all of us to serve in the church, all of us to express that gift. And so there's provision for for leadership roles for men and women. Yet, the ultimate authority of the church rests with men as elders, overseers, now we got to land this plane, and maybe I should have long, long ago. I'm sure you still have questions. Here we just scratched the surface. There was more I had to cut than I would have liked to keep us on time today. I hope I've at least provided some insight, some clarity, answered some questions. You're welcome to come talk to me if there's more. If there's anything I've said that's been, in, been confusing, maybe felt inconsistent. But here's what I want us to land. We as elders, Kyle, JD, myself, we as elders of this church, we have a settled conviction and agreement on this passage. What, what we understand God to be meaning here and how we should operate as a church. As we strive to be a healthy church, we've taken this passage and others like it to heart. We've wrestled with the implications of them and how to implement them in our day and our ways. I'm, in this church, here in Alani Life, we take this to mean the role of an elder is reserved for men. 
yet we invite women to offer their perspective to the elder board. We do this in, a, in an official capacity with Leah Norcross joining us monthly to speak into what we're doing, offer perspective, to help us see what we're missing. Yet the responsibility of the church rests with the elders, not with the staff, not with the small group leaders, not with just me as the pastor. It rests with the elders, those that have been qualified and recognized to lead. As elders, we likewise take this passage very seriously. The charge to be unified and to pray, take it seriously. Each of our meetings, we spend important time unified in prayer, praying for you all, praying for each other, praying for God's guidance. We're united in prayer. Our manner of acting, how we make decisions in the church is unanimity, which I always struggle to say. What I mean by that is we don't, we don't just take a vote and, the, and the, the, you know, most votes wins. Two against one, go take a seat, Nick. Now, we make decisions unanimously. We agree and we move forward unanimously as elders. We're unified. It's important. That's what Paul challenges, challenges us to. As we lead the church, we need to be united. So we submit, we yield. We debate, we discuss, we pray, we come to unanimous decisions. Additionally, because all of us in the church has been gifted to serve in the church, all of us can lead in those giftings in the church. We want to make space for that. And so, if a woman wants to lead a Bible study and is gifted in that way, she can do so. If a woman wants to lead worship and is gifted in that way, she can do so. If a woman wants to preach a sermon, wants to prophesy, bring the word of the Lord on Sunday, she's gifted in that way. She can. Yet all of these things, all of these things fall under the authority of the elders. All of them are under our authority and our oversight. We know what's going on, who's doing what, we've approved it, we've discussed it. On Sundays, on Sunday morning, when you see someone other than me, Kyle, or JD preaching, they have been an approved teacher by the board. They do so under our authority. What I mean by that is I have assigned the passage for them to read and teach from. I've assigned the background material and commentaries for them to read. I've met with them and handled, heard their exegesis and corrected it if needed. I've heard their message and what they're going to say. I've coached the message. I've helped them arrive at where they are when they get here on Sunday. It's under our authority. It's under our oversight. No one gets up on Sunday and surprises me with what they say. They have spent time with me. We have discussed it. I know what they were supposed to read. I hold them accountable to that. If they do surprise me, <laughs> we discuss as a board whether they should be a teacher again. <laughs> this is what it means for them to be under the authority of the elders. Do we see teaching in the church as a gifting? We want to make sure that those that have the gift can exercise it under the appropriate authority. And I'm sure there's other ways. These are the key ways and the ways that I know we get challenged on, so I wanted to discuss them. In all of these, we believe these are measures that are appropriate 
and God-honoring ways for us to honor Scripture, what we've been challenged and instructed, and to live as a healthy church, one that prays for all people, that relates appropriately to one another, and observes the distinct roles God has given to men and women. Will you pray with me?